I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Okay, well, thank you all for coming. And uh, as Maya says, the Brexit debate is still hotting up, isn't it? Uh, so we're all, you know, very interested to know what the answers are going to be finally, if there are any. Um, in this book, uh, we wrote, we're not, we, we don't actually say that we're going to take any particular position. When we actually started writing it, which was about 18 months ago, um, you know, we said, okay, there may be a hard, a soft Brexit, we may be in, out, maybe, who knows, we're not going to, you know, put, put forward a position. But what we are going to do is to try and explain why Brexit. And going back, we, it occurred to us that the one thing that uh, was being pushed was Great Britain, you know, we are going to be great again once we've had Brexit. And the other thing was take back control. And of course, we, looking at this, we realised that we were in control. We were in control of an empire that had 500 million people or more in it at its high point. Um, we've lost it. We've lost it. There isn't an empire anymore. And gradually, we think Brexit is kind of the working out of, of this, this end of empire. And it's not just nostalgia that we're talking about. Um, you know, people do have this, this uh, you know, sort of nostalgic view of what the empire was like. And those of us who are, dare I say it, over 50 here. Uh, That's me. Yes, okay. <laughs> I wouldn't say hands up over 50, but you'll all remember the pink maps. You remember the pink bits on the maps? You know, in the classroom, we were all taught about empire. Empire was great. Somehow, we, have, we got these politicians who decided that Yes, they'd been to rather peculiar schools, of which we'll be saying more later. So what we wanted to do in the book was look at the kind of loss of empire, uh, not just nostalgia, but also the economic side, because in the, uh, after the first, Second World War, when we did lose the, the empire, there was no uh, tribute coming back from it. And even the people who came over, invited to come over as immigrants to work, they were treated and still are treated very badly. So we wanted to look at um, the treatment of immigrants over the last hundred years or so, and just why we were so horrible to immigrants. We want to look at the economic consequences of, of what happens when you lose an empire. And uh, we wanted to look at particularly at the education system. What went wrong or what didn't we do? Why did our education system misinform us uh, over these years or not, not inform us about, about what, what was going on? So the education system is very important. And then, of course, overarching it all is the, is the inequality that has developed in this country. We didn't have to have, you know, the end of empire, this creation of inequality, but somehow we managed it. So we wanted to look at that, why there is such inequality and why so many people voted in so many different ways uh, for Brexit. Right. Okay. Often we're criticised for talking about uh, British exceptionalism. But, of course, the reason we're talking about British exceptionalism is that we were the first of the 28 countries to try to leave. We may be the last of the 28 countries to try to leave for some time because we've demonstrated it's not that easy to leave. And statistically, you wouldn't have expected it to be one of the five large countries. Italy, Spain, France, Germany and us. You would expect it to have been a smaller country. It would be more likely to happen there. I think it's fair to say there must be something odd about Britain, that Britain is the first to have done it. But clearly, when you're looking at all of this, um, you're greatly affected by your own prejudices. Me and Sally share remarkably similar prejudices, so we make each other feel um, very happy when we talk about things because we agree, which is also <laughs> always useful if you're writing, writing a book. But many of you are probably thinking, oh, you know, yeah. I've heard this kind of thing before and you can't prove it. So one thing we do in the book, most of the first chapter and most of the penultimate chapter, because we went on about it far too long for one chapter, is talk about the original vote. Because what's remarkable, I think, is still that people are peddling a lie about the vote. And it's a really easy lie to disprove. You can't know. I can't look into your souls and work out why you voted as you voted. 
I do know that if I ask you how you voted, some of you will lie to me without knowing, because people always say they voted at a far higher rate than they really did vote. 90% of people think they voted in the referendum, and they probably really do. The one thing we know for sure is where people voted. And that's the only thing we know for sure, with 100% accuracy, down to the last person. Um, so I'm going to tell you a little bit about that. Then the second piece of information we've got is Lord Ashcroft's exit poll. And we're quite grateful to Lord Ashcroft, not only because he owns Biteback, which means he can't <laughs> sue us for everything we've written about him in the book. We kind of went slightly overboard when we realised that. I don't think a publisher can sue themselves. Uh, but also, bless him, he arranged this incredibly expensive exit poll. The BBC weren't going to do one. And the exit poll is where... You literally interview people seconds after they've walked out of the polling stations because you wouldn't believe how quickly people forget what they've done. Um, <laughs> it's true. It really is true. We do. And he, I think it's obvious that he organised the exit poll because he, like many of the, of the leavers, assumed that they were going to lose the first time. The plan was to lose the first time. You should have seen the look on their faces when they didn't lose the first time. They knew it would all go horribly wrong if they didn't, you know, if they actually won uh, leave, which is why they're quiet now. Anyway, the exit poll tells you that the majority of people who voted were social class A, B, C, 1. Tells you that the majority were conservative voters. Most conservative voters voted leave. This is a middle class Tory vote. I could say it again and again and again and again, but that's what the exit poll tells you. What the vote tells you because we know the number of people who voted leave, remain, and didn't vote in each area, is it is a southern vote. The exit poll could tell us nothing about people who didn't vote, because you didn't walk out of the polling station if you didn't vote. The actual results tell you who didn't vote. And I bought one handout, because I tend to get bored. If I'm sitting in an audience like this, I don't know, I kind of get jittery and move around. So the handout, and it is complicated, there are 20 different maps of counties in the south of England, uh, of which I'm afraid Essex is so complicated it's on two sides. <laughs> and let me explain what, what, how it works and I'll shut up for a bit. For every single county, I've got Somerset in front of me. Uh, in Somerset, 288,122 people voted leave. Right, 288,122. No ever, no survey, that really is it. And you can come up with a set of areas in the north of England, in this case, Darlington, Harrogate, Stockton-on-Tees, Hartlepool, Middlesbrough, Hamilton and York, which have a bigger electorate than Somerset, but fewer people voted leave. And nobody goes to Somerset and say, why did you do it? They certainly go to Middlesbrough and say, why did you do it? But they should be going to Somerset. And for every single county, I've got 20 for you here, I'm finishing off the last eight, they take a long time to do. <laughs> For every single county, I can find a different set of all areas in the north, particularly ones that are always associated with leave, like Stoke and, you know, Great Yarmouth and so on. It's not really in the north. And just show it is always bigger in the south. And the question is, why? And it's mainly because southerners voted to leave. You know, it's kind of as simple as, as that. But also, this vote was very weighted by age. Where do you think most old people are in Britain? They're in the south, you die earlier in the north. Uh, the south has a higher population, but crucially, the turnout was higher in the south. Poor, working class, people in the north do not vote. That's the thing they most often do, they do not vote. Secondly, they don't vote for something. Conversely, middle class people, the old people in the, in the south, they vote. 90% of them vote. You know, they really do. We can work it out, because when you vote and you... <coughs> have your name crossed out on that little bit of paper. That little paper's a public document. So we can actually get hold of it and know whether you voted or not. Anybody can. So if you're very nerdy, you can do studies of who lies and who forgets. And also, I mean, interesting studies. The nearer you are to the polling station, the more likely you are to vote. If it's downhill, seriously, the more likely you are to vote. <laughs> uphill people discount things anyway let me hand these out and I'm going to give you some pens because <laughs> I'm a university lecturer um, it tells you they vote leave in the southern county it tells you the electorate of the southern county 
It then tells you to vote leave in the areas collected together that are the opposite of that county, which I have picked, and then the electorate of the areas that are opposite. I've picked the whole of the north. No areas included twice, no areas missed out in every single case. Oxfordshire, Cornwall, Kent, even although you haven't got it in the city of London, I can find you an area with fewer leave voters outside. And that kind of matters in the last few weeks as we kind of ramp up to project real, real, real fear. Um, I think it's really, really important that we know this is Southern and it's owned by the Tory party and it's their constituents, their voters. It was them that did it. The desperate attempts to blame it on others. Why do we have the rhetoric? We have the rhetoric and here we're guessing. This is certain, right? Now we're back into guessing. On the night, they were shocked. The spread betting had said Remain were gonna win. Cameron had always won. Joe was stabbed to death by a fascist a few days earlier. Everybody assumed it was going to win, including Nigel Farage. You're sitting there in W1A. The result comes in from Sunderland, because Sunderland always declares first. Camera zooms in on that woman and the two men of my age who've lost their hair more than I have. And bang, you've got a story. You've got a story that you can use, because you have to make up a story. And the story you don't want to tell if you're sitting around the studio in W1A is it's my parents in Hampshire, right? Because this is shocking for you. This thing wasn't supposed to happen. The repercussions are going through your head as you're sitting reporting it. You know your parents in Hampshire voted leave, but you think they're odd and it's just your parents who are always horrible because, you know, your own parents are the ones you disagree with, but other people have nice parents. But actually, the grandparents in Hampshire were the ones who voted out. But there's a, this is only two chapters of the book, so I'll shut up about it. But it really annoys me, and it's one thing that's new in the book. It's just saying, absolutely. And it isn't that new. Three weeks after the vote, we published this in the British Medical Journal, because Brexit is a massive health issue. Three weeks after the vote saying it, just disbelieved. Just thought, that can't be right, you must have made a mistake adding up. The British Medical Journal check there. You know, they worry about you getting the numbers right because they mainly deal with medicines and people dying. First annoyance, but I'll shut up there. Well, those of who've, who've read your Guardian today, and I'm sure quite a lot read, read the Guardian, of course, uh, you'll find there's another article today, yet again, mm. saying just what Nanny said. Our intrepid reporter tracked down from the north of England through all the leave, the so-called leave voting areas from Sunderland down to Stoke-on-Trent, down to Northampton, uh, then arrived back in London saying, oh yes, everywhere I went, you know, they were, said they'd vote leave because of this and that. Mm. Why didn't he start in Cornwall and start, you know, start trekking up through? Because I think Winchester was the, the, the crutch. Winchester's leave yeah. central. Winchester yeah. is, yeah. Now, I'll go on to the, another topic we, we um, seize on in the book, which is um, uh, you'll have heard that a lot of people are supposed to have voted out because of immigration and immigrants. Um, now, um, I've lived in quite a few places, but I've ended up now living in the Cotswold village. And everyone in this Cotswold village voted leave. We have one immigrant family in, in this village. You know? and, um, oh, and then we do have a posh hotel where obviously uh, people come from, um, uh, from the, the EU to work. But soon, you know, we're going to really notice if they're not allowed to come and work in, uh, in our posh hotel. So what people, um, you know, perhaps didn't understand or think about is that um, this anti-immigrant thing has been going on for years and years and years. I mean, in the 19th century, it was a bit easier because um, you will remember there was a guy called Friedrich Engels. Um, everybody knows Engels. He had a friend called Karl Marx. He was, an, he was an author, was Karl Marx. He used to sit and write, you know. And um, they could, of course, flip backwards and forwards to, to, um, to, to the continent, you know, France, Germany, they were always, you know. And there was also another rather nice couple, they were poor. There was a guy called um, uh, Michael Marx, and he had a friend called Thomas Spencer, and they opened a market stall in Leeds in 1876. And have we heard of Marx and Spencer? Mm -hmm. Right. 
that's how it began, you know, because they were immigrants and that was okay. But uh, no, there were too many immigrants coming over from Eastern Europe. And the first Immigration Control Act, which is interesting, was to stop people coming from Europe, from Eastern Europe, and particularly Jewish people who were coming. So the Aliens Act in 1905 was to stop people coming. And there was even uh, an, an organization called the British Brotherhood, you know, we've heard that before, which actually talked about the scum of Europe coming into this country. And of course, that's something that went on and on. Uh, something that, you know, maybe you don't know is that from the 1960s, we've had 16 Immigration Control Acts. So all this take back control, stop immigrants coming into the country, there have been 16 Immigrant Control Acts. And the last couple under this particular government have been quite nasty. And of course, we now have the Windrush scandal. And of course, that's still going on, which just demonstrates just how unpleasant we can be to people coming into this country. So we do go on quite a bit, don't we, about immigration mm. there. Shall I go and do education? Do education, definitely. Okay, yeah. yes, because, you know, one of the reasons that we, uh, we have been nasty to immigrants, incidentally, I, my very first job was in Wolverhampton in a, a prime, in fact, it was in an infant school because that was so far away those times we actually had infant schools. And here, my whole class was Caribbean or uh, South Asian kids just coming into the country, and this was 1968. Who knows what else happened in 1968 against immigrants? Oh. Thank you. Enoch Powell. Enoch Powell, you know, famous MP, giving his blood speech and telling us that we oughtn't to have immigrants coming into the country. He invited them when he was um, Minister of Health in 1962. He actually had officers in Jamaica and in, in the Punjab to actually invite people to come and work in the health service. Uh, but he'd forgotten all that. And now he realised that he was, a, a, he was a, a, another chancer as it were you know he could be prime minister if he got enough of the country worked up about immigration and so that was kind of my first job and when I first met Enoch Powell um, incidentally he went on about rivers of blood but we did we did put in the book that the actual river in Wolverhampton is called the River Tame and it actually had quite a lot of industrial waste and dead cats and so on at that time <laughs> didn't care about that you know he just cared about the immigration issue the education system has been dismally failing at actually explaining what, what went on and what, what is still going on. Those of you, anyone went to, um, I can't put this wrong, can I? Anyone went to a private school known as a public school? Public schools. Public schools. More than that we had northerners. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. More, there you are, you yeah. see, yes. yes. Um, well, I don't know what your curriculum was like, but mm. going back into the late 1800s, early 1900s, the curriculum was, was kind of hideously militaristic, patriotic, religiously inclined, uh, training young men, and they were mainly men, to go out and run an empire. You know? And so this had to be quite a particular curriculum. Mm. And if you look at that curriculum, and I, I've got quite a collection of books of that time, they are, well, of their time, you might say, but really they are absolutely awful in many ways. Um, and what happened was that the, this curriculum from the, pu the public schools filtered down into the grammar schools of the time and then into the elementary schools of the working classes. And then um, all this sort of patriotism and em imperialism sort of filtered through right till the time when, say, we now remember still when I was at school and some of you were, that we had Empire Day. Did you remember Empire Day? Okay, Empire Day started in 1911 and it went on until 1969. And I do remember that because we all got free mug. You, know, you, got, <laughs> you didn't have to go and buy your mugs. You got free mug and it said uh, the empire on God mm. save the king on it or God save the queen. Uh, and of course, we also got chocolate as well. You got, got chocolate with, you know, imperial chocolate on it. So Empire Day went on and, and this whole notion um, of um, uh, the empire being great, you know, and that somehow um, Niall Ferguson, who wrote a book called How Britain, Britain Made the Modern World, mm. he wrote that few years ago, six, uh, eight years ago, and Niall Ferguson is a right-wing historian, you know, and he really does believe that Britain made the modern world. And he was an advisor to Michael Gove when Michael Gove was redoing the curriculum a few years ago. So you can see these things all kind of filter through. The, we had nothing in education to actually explain, yeah. you know, and I was a teacher while it was going on, why people were coming to this country and this misinformation about what had happened in the past or in the present about uh, empire and why people were here, misinformation. Yeah. So. 
So we've got lots and lots, mainly thanks to Sally, because she does collect these particularly bigoted textbooks. <laughs> we've got lots of quotes from different decades showing what people were taught at school, which helps fit partly with the vote by age. And a lot about the leading Brexiteers, what schools they went to, which Oxford College they went to. Exeter, by the way, ranks as worst. So many of them went to Oxford Colleges that you can actually produce a little league table of Oxford Colleges uh, for Brexit. How many of the funders of, of Brexit grew up in a colony and had servants? And it may be coincidental, but it probably isn't. Because you've got to kind of go to the, the, the question behind the question behind the question to work out what the answer is. Yes, immigration was the most salient issue. Yes, it correlated 0.8 with the vote. It's just it correlated the opposite way. The fewer immigrants, the more you voted. But when you ask people, they say, oh, the immigrants. And they have said in, in election after election, apart from 2010, it was the only election where immigration wasn't the biggest issue. But why immigration? Then you can look at, we have the highest income inequality in the whole of Europe. That's a hell of an achievement. Out of 28 countries, when you're a large country, actually, it's really, really hard when you're a large country to be more unequal than all the other 27. It just takes an enormous amount of effort. And that's what the city of London's for. But creating the biggest pool of poverty in Western Europe, you know, somebody deserves a kind of medal for it on the side of evil. Um, but we, we did that. And it's not surprising that the most unequal country in Europe is one of the ones with the most disaffection and people willing to vote for anything else. But why did we become the most unequal country in Europe? <laughs> and every time we go back, we hit this thing that unlike any other country in Europe, we had the world's biggest empire that ever been, and we were incredibly rich. And that fell and fell. And then people go, oh, France had an empire. You really wouldn't call it an empire compared to ours? I even had people tell me that Germany had an empire. Or Italy, you know. <laughs> You can add all their empires, all their little empires up together and you still don't get anywhere towards what we had. We picked up people from Africa. We always teach people about ending the slave trade. We never teach them about beginning it. We picked up hundreds of thousands from Africa. We moved them over to South America and North America to pick cotton. We moved the cotton back. We destroyed the textile industry of the subcontinent. We made them buy our goods. And then in the subcontinent, we grew opium, which we forced the Chinese to buy. You know, we honestly, when you just look at it, nobody else did that. And it was highly, highly profitable. It really was. And when that went, when the last colonies went, when India goes and then various colonies in Africa goes, that advantage of unfair terms of trade and patronism control goes. And we become relatively poorer. And we blame the unions, we blame endless groups, but eventually it doesn't work because there aren't any unions left. And all you've got to blame are the immigrants. And so you begin to blame them. And one interesting thing about the way the vote has gone is we're not going to be able to blame the immigrants. We're already, is it 200,000 people have not come now, I think? Um, the big thing is who doesn't come anymore? We'll probably blame them for not coming. But... <laughs> One, other than what's going wrong and going to go wrong, Brexit, the result, has called the bluff of all these nasty arguments. And it's also called the bluff of what we're worth. And the sum of negotiations has shown what we're worth, what we actually produce. And the big shock for us is that we're not that vital to the mainland. And we're certainly not as vital as we fought in our own heads. So why did we think we were so special? And this is what ended up. At the time of the height of our empire, theories about how the world worked changed. The most fundamental theory of how the world changed was Charles Darwin and the origin of species and the survival of the fittest and the idea that those who are best suited to do well will get to the top. And the English elite told themselves that they were the fittest. They were born and meant to rule. It was a great excuse. And they still tell themselves that. Empire 2.0, free ourselves from the shackles of Europe. George Osborne, who wasn't even a lever, said in 2015, if you follow his economic plan, we will be the richest large country on earth by 2030. 
Why did George Osborne think it was so important to become the richest large country on the planet? Other than believing that there's some natural destiny for this island to rule, I can't think of any reason for that kind of thinking. And that we've got to get it out. And one thing Brexit could do is actually cleanse our minds of this particular idea. How likely do you think that is, though? Just, I mean, for those of you who have or haven't seen today the Defence Secretary Governor um, Williamson saying that Brexit has brought us to a great moment in our history, a moment when we must strengthen our global presence, enhance our lethality and increase <laughs> our mass. How, I mean, because like, you've covered this gross mm. inequality in Britain, the problem with our education system. Also, I think there's a complete erasure of black and brown people in the vote who are mm. disproportionately working <coughs> class, but yeah. were more likely to vote remain, right? So we, we also have this reintroduction of obsession with talking about this mythical white working class when we talk about the Brexit vote, which still seems to be shaping so much of the debate. Still, we have this toxic immigration <laughs> rhetoric coming from the Conservative Party. It's one of Theresa May's red lines. Mm. Perhaps I'm just a pessimist, but what hope do you see that there is for there being a shift when it seems that these narratives are actually, to me, they seem to be entrenching, but maybe you can bring us some optimism with, with this bleak picture we have right now. Well, I read Gavin Williamson's sentence and I, I didn't know what lethality meant. You know, I, I had to go and look it up. Um, I think it just means being nasty, you know. So, um, <laughs> and because the other thing I was going to say was, um, anybody heard of national service? No, uh, okay, yes, because a lot of um, young men between 1946 and 62 uh, did national service and they actually went to, um, they were, they were co-opted and coerced into actually fighting to actually try and keep empire and gradually it went. So um, this whole thing about defence, you know, that somehow we had to defend the country, it was being attacked not only by the Russians, although now there's a new Cold War, but the idea that, um, that you're going to be great again by, by force is, is something that's quite dangerous. Mm. However, let us be optimistic, <laughs> because we did think, didn't we, ultimately, that there were, I mean, we, are, what, we looked at what we're good at, um, Danny may elaborate on this, but we are actually very good at tourism, aren't we? You know, we, we, mm. here we are in this lovely tourist area, and mm. so long as we've got our royal family here and uh, <laughs> doing their tours, you know, we're, we're going to be very good at tourism. We're actually good at spying as well. Mm. I mean, <laughs> we've got, you know, GCHQ over there, and because um, yeah. there might be a few problems now, because I read again this morning that um, Interpol is a bit worried because now if we're leaving Europe, we won't be able to do the um, catch the criminals, you know, and bring them back again. So Interpol's worried. Nevertheless, we, we're quite good at spying, which is going to be very important, especially spying into um, other people's trade deals and other mm. people's uh, businesses and so on. Yeah. So spying. We're also quite good at, well, we used to be good at education. We still are good at education. But if we keep high university fees and we keep this competitiveness in yeah. our education system, um, we now we'll lose our education positives like research with other yeah. European countries, the Erasmus scheme that um, uh, university students have benefited from. Um, maybe, you know, we, we might lose a bit on education. So we've got to think about ed higher education, education yeah. all around. And make that better. So, you know, those are three things that we could actually be yeah. quite positive about. You um, think of some more? I can. <laughs> it's incredibly easy to be pessimistic. I and mean, we'll probably do it in questions, yeah. but I can play you a game of I can up your worry with my worry. So I'm not going to do that now. The positiveness is just how stupid they are. So <laughs> he, he could have been more subtle. Yeah. He could have chosen his mm. words a bit more carefully. He could have talked about our wounded soldiers, that kind of way of having a go at you. Hero. He could have not kept her. Is it still a live tarantula or was it dead yet? Mm. You know, he's famous for having this pet tarantula that he keeps. The level of, of stupidity is usefully high. So they're not subtle over what they say. They're beginning to say what they truly believe. Partly, you've got to remember they're having an enormous battle in the Conservative Party. Mm. The biggest battle since the Corn Laws. If you don't particularly like the Conservative Party, this is fairly good news. They are incredibly well behaved still. Not a single vote against her in a vote of no confidence, not one. But I'm, 
I always think it's good news when the Conservative Party have got a massive internal squabble. We also have to remember that we're going to drop from whatever it is, 5th or 6th, to 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, I think about 12th. And that's just on the basis of the changing value of the pound to the dollar already. So you can actually work it out because the international stats come out a bit later. Being the 12th richest country in the world isn't bad. You know, the idea that we're going to go, this is absolutely terrible. We're going to drop to be the 12th richest. We might not be number two in the Olympics anymore. You know, we are so wealthy. The housing is built. We have enough housing for everybody to sleep in a bedroom and so on. I've gone on about some other things. That the only fear is that we are so utterly stupid. You know, something's happened to us genetically to mean we're incapable. <laughs> Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Of not allowing a small group of psychopathic, very rich people turn us into the worst country on the edge of Europe so they can play their offshore finance games. You know, that, the only real fear is that we are so stupid, we'll let them do it. And, and I just don't believe it. Half of all young women go to university now. The main thing that, in England, more than the boys, the main thing about going to university is it, is it tells you you're not stupid. You know, if you're lucky, it even teaches you something else. But it means that you don't have to dock your forelock and think, you know, they're better than me. And I don't think you can educate a population to that point and tell them that most of their children are going to have to live a life of poverty so a few people can be billionaires with very many servants. Uh, my mother became political, I think when she was 15, in a town hall in Leeds, when MPs were viciously arguing about the Suez crisis, 1956 at which point she realised what kind of country this was. But also, she had an idea about what kind of country it could be. And what a bunch of old stuffy bigots there had been in charge, and how things could be better. And within just five or six years of Suez, we had the 1960s. We had people being allowed to read a book which you wouldn't normally allow your wife or servants to read. Uh, we had, you know, which circular it was, but the introduction, beginning of the first time ever, schools that everybody could go to. I would have failed the 11 plus. I'm very grateful for the 1960s. It took a long time to come in. But luckily, by the time I was 11, it had just got in. Otherwise, I'd have been going to the secondary modern. So very shortly after the last episode we've had like this, things got dramatically better. Now, but that takes work, it doesn't just happen. But in general in Britain, when we've improved things, has been after the elite have made a complete mess. After they've sent people to an unnecessary war that was supposed to last weeks and lasted years. After they've destroyed the economy, you get the rise and rise of progressive voting. After they send you to a second world war that they could have avoided, then you come back and you vote Winston Churchill out. The elite making an almighty mess and showing they're incompetent is what is often needed to get people to actually realise, no, if I behave myself and save and work hard, I won't be all right. I need to get rid of them. And we're at that point. Possibly electorally, because you worry about the elections, the biggest thing that will help will be house prices falling. That solid block of 40% of people who carry on saying they're going to vote Conservative, they stop doing so when house prices fall. They don't vote Labour, they just start not going to the poll. It last happened in a wonderful way in the early 90s in London, when all the outer boroughs, which used to be Tory, the Tories lost control because negative equity, the people who bought the houses <laughs> on the edge, they'd done everything they were supposed to do. And the party which was supposed to look after the hard-working thrifty had let them down. 
Now, this is a bigger letdown than any letdown you can ever imagine. The Conservatives will try incredibly hard to blame it on another party. It's entirely of their making. It's their manifesto promise. It's their voters. It's their areas. It's their deal. It is them. And anybody who tries to not focus the attention to that, I think, isn't helping at all. But apart from that, we're optimistic. (laughs) So on that note, we will open it up for um, questions. So if you raise your hand. Thank you very much. That was really fascinating. I'm just wondering if it's not just about sort of the elite um, and people, you know, doffing their caps to the elite and thinking about empire and past glory, but I wonder if it's also to do with the psychological mechanism of projection that we just don't ever seem to go beyond blaming others. So, you know, we all blame our partners for what we're not doing in our own lives. We all blame... We we look outside to point the finger at somebody else. And I'm wondering, you know... If there was no elite, we would still perhaps be doing the same. Mm. And it is, is, isn't that one of the problems, is, is that we're lacking education in terms of emotional intelligence <laughs> and actually learning about the mechanisms of taking responsibility of, mm. you know, just how we make sense of the world and actually it's not all about the other person, it's actually yeah. about us too. Yeah, if we take the gentleman next to you, Phil. I feel very similar to you. And uh, I worry that politics is broken. And what scares me most is two things. One is how it looks like Orwell was right and we've got three big power blocks developing. And secondly, how awfully close England has been to America and how they seem to take what we do and make it 10 times worse and put it back to us. We've got nasty people in America and nasty people who, I can't believe how nasty they are. Is that a question? So is politics broken and we have to have a revolution or civil unrest or something? Just on the, the, um, uh, it's scapegoating, you know, and I mean, um, people are always quite good at scapegoating, you know, you you always project your fears and your terrors on someone else. I mean, this psychologists have been writing about this for years, but I think we're actually, we've seen this with Brexit in a a big way. It's nothing to do with me, it's it's somebody else's. And it's always, um, when you read it, it's always about we and us. It's never about, you know, the other. And then, of course, this fear of the other, which has been um, stoked up by politicians of all parties, I have to say, you know, over the years. So I think that that you're right. This is another aspect that that is quite important. And then I don't think it's helped, too, by what I call the selfie culture, you know. Me, 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 you know. And everybody's taking photos of themselves, you know. Turn this around and just take photos of other people and just see what they're doing. Yeah. There's lovely international research on this. Uh, which shows that blaming other people is most common in places like the United States, when you ask people what's the fault of other people, and least common in Finland and Japan, where people say, if you don't get it, it's my own fault. Uh, partly because, of course, you're in a society which tends to look after you. So partly, sadly, is your own fault. And it's one of the theories as to why the suicide rates are higher in more equal countries, because people internalise blame. Whereas to survive, I mean, in this country, to survive, to do well at school, You've got to think, I'm better than the rest of them. I'm going to get the A and B. I mean, I'm going to get the A and B means I am better than most of them. And then I'm going to get the A stars and the A levels means I'm better than 90% of them. And then I'm going to get to that right university means I'm better than 95% of them. And then I'm going to get to the right college in Oxford, not the scummy one, but the posh cocks of college. And way, you know, Cameron was brazenose. I'm going to get the first, Cameron got the first, poor old Boris only got a 2-1. Yeah. Right? And he feels a failure. Because he's only in the 99.99999, not in above. So there's fascinating stuff about how we blame others and when we uh, take... And it's partly the country you grow up in that makes you think that way, and the time. So there's no reason people were more magnanimous in the past in Britain and grew up with a more cooperative idea of how you do things, which is why you could get them to work really hard in a health service for very little pay when you knew you were all in it together. Um, I'm more optimistic than you. I think there's a real problem. If you're sitting in the United States and the UK, you can feel awful. And then what we tend to do is we look at other people's politics and we say, it's all bad. The right wing's rising everywhere. Populism's rising everywhere. It's all bad. Sorry to call them inequality, but the most unequal countries are Brazil, the United States, Russia, 
Turkey. You know, all the ones with the despots have the economic inequality beforehand. The vast majority of the OECD, inequality is falling and they're not run by despots. And politics is getting better. And babies are surviving better this year than the year before and twice as better than our babies. Standards of schools are going up in most of the world. The quality of housing is going up. Number of people on the streets in Helsinki, of course, is zero. They are in the public bathrooms, but they're not on the streets. We're at a time of incredible rise of standard of living in most countries. The New York Times does a plot of far-right voting. And what nobody ever does is they never look over time at the places where the far-right are falling in Europe. And of course, it's not news. You don't get reports about Greece. My friend is over there, so he can contradict me. But, you know, Gold and Dawn are doing very badly compared to how they were doing before. Or, when the French all came together, it was supposed to be Trump, Brexit, and then Le Pen. What happens? The French, because they know what they're doing, get together and all vote for somebody they don't want. Right? Which is what you have to do to stop a disaster happening. Um, they... I'd be happy to argue with you, you can make a case that in, in most of the rich world, things are still getting better. Not as fast as they were before, because the actual world as a whole, apart from the billionaires, is becoming more equal. And it's not just the rise of China. But that is a good thing. But it means that Europe can't have 2% growth year on year, because otherwise you're going to get a more unequal world. And in most of the world that's not rich, you're getting even faster falls in inequality and the biggest improvement in infant mortality in the history of the human race. But the problem is we're here. And one thing, because things are awful here, and because to sell news you talk about awful things, we go, well, it's still all bad over there. What's going on in, in Japan? You tell me. What's absolutely terrible in Germany? Oh, you say, oh, Germany, it's the only country in Europe which has the same homeless rate as us. Yes, because they let in a million and a half bloody Syrian people, many of whom are still in tents under motorways, but at least they're in Germany. Right? The only way you can get to our homeless rate is by letting in a million and a half desperate people. It's not worse than us. It's quite impressive what they're doing in Germany. Yeah. Presumably in education, ideas like the idea of empire have a long half-life because someone was taught that and they go on to be a teacher. What's your sense of the extent to which that pink bit that some of us who are old enough were taught still exists in the curriculum today? Because most teachers in most teachers of very young pupils are probably in their 20s. Is that still happening? Well, uh, to a certain extent it is actually because we had this Gove curriculum that, you know, read it to the curriculum in 2013. And I looked at one of the um, A-level modules that was supposed to be history from, and the history went from 1951 to 1997. <laughs> <laughs> so it nicely missed out the, la- the Labour Party and the welfare state after the, and then it missed out, okay, well, once say after 97. So it was really a, a module of, <laughs> of uh, the conservative policies for that. Now, I'm not saying everybody took that module, but a lot of them did. So I can't say, looking at the curriculum, um, that it is. And in fact, my next move and is to actually start a, a campaign to actually try and bring people to understand the imperial curriculum and how it did go down from generation to generation. It, in some cases, it's a bit better now, but mainly teacher education is not terribly good at this. Oh, but it's much better than my... You know, I, I, was, I had some great teachers particularly Miss Lewis for geography is wonderful. But she was 22. Um, I was taught by older men who'd been demobbed from the army yeah. and given a job as a teacher with no qualification, 46, 47, at their end of their career. You know, they taught me, then they had a particular belief. Teachers are now qualified. And many of the teachers, of course, didn't grow up in Britain either. The sad thing is we're about to lose them. It's much more gove than the actual teachers. In geography, he did the equivalent he changed the A-level curriculum in a way. He tried to get rid of climate change, unbelievably. And we managed to keep that in. Uh, but he said the only area you could look at worldwide was Latin America, which is the only place that the British haven't got a particular <laughs> history of mucking up. And I think it's subconscious with Gove. I don't think he sat there going, well, we can't have them looking at India. And, you know, we can't have them looking at this. 
you know, we'll do that. We didn't used to interfere with the curriculum. Was it Baker the first? Education ministers used to be like health ministers. You would leave it to the teachers. I've applied twice to be on on the national curricular panels, and for some reason, <laughs> um, down. and the Conservatives, they've never, right. no, even when I got this posh job at Oxford, I thought, that's it, <laughs> Alpha McKean, the Professor of Geography, they'll take me now, <laughs> no, nope. not even have applied to my application um, <laughs> to do it, anyway. And I think part of the problem is that the, this history of empire, you can make it through the education system without really engaging with it much more, so yeah. there's an optional GCSE that is about empire, and you have to take a, another GCSE. CSE option that is about mm. migration as well. So the two go together, mm. but it's not compulsory. So because mm -hmm. it's chronological, I used to work in, in a school. So because it's chronological, you can make it through. You do learn about empire, but you can essentially make mm. it through a significant part of your education without understanding how Britain has always been constituted by yeah. other parts of the world. So I, I think uh, maybe yeah. this is part of our problem as uh, well. And not, not a single child in China gets to the end of their school education without knowing about the Opium Wars and the Boxer Rebellion and, and how we took them from the most successful country on the planet right down to nothing. Not a single child from China, that, you know. And we at least, you know, even if you didn't care about the truth, just in terms of our naked self-interest, we do need to inform the population of Britain as we deal with the Chinese that they know something about us that we don't know about ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> Fascinating, and I completely, of course, agree with you regarding, you know, uh, Britain and the nostalgia for empire. But I was just thinking, I mean, I grew up in uh, an old empire, if, uh, an old colony, rather, if you like. Um, and the way I was taught about the British Empire was also to be told, you know, this was something benevolent. I grew up in Mauritius, so, and, 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 and this is something that I see repeated in um, curriculum, say, in India, for example. Empire is often taught as being benevolent which I'm, you know, fascinated and bewildered by. Uh, and I wonder somewhere if there is a kind of, co uh, you know, correlation somewhere with, uh, you know, how we in the ex-colonies are taught about empire and the mm. fact that, you know, the largest, uh, for lack of a better term, non-white uh, group of British people who voted leave mm. is probably the brown uh, British in, 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 uh, in England. Um, I, I don't know, I just wanted to know your views. Like, what do you think about this kind of, like, brown nostalgia for empire, if you like? Yeah, I, I'm fascinated by the idea that, that Leave is a sort of southern Winchester-based... Uh, but there's another dimension to it, which is, of course, Labour, and Labour's struggle with this issue. Corbyn is not an enthusiastic Remainer. Um, so I just think the story's a little bit, you know, you've tilted it one way, and I'd quite like you to, to engage with the issue that a lot of Labour MPs are very concerned about their Leave majority seats. And the, the only other thing is I was really intrigued by Essex, but I didn't feel we quite got to the bottom of it. Um, so although it's massively complicated, I think we're both a little confused still, aren't we? So yeah. can you just finish off about Essex? <laughs> Essex, do you want to pass me Essex? And I'll, I'll do, I'll try to explain Essex. Uh, I'll mark them. Let me do Corbyn first and then, then you. Um, I think he's remarkably consistent. Um, so uh, when he didn't want to join, we were the second most equal country in Europe to Sweden, and you could make an argument for not joining at that point. Um, he said he's 7 out of 10. I don't think he was lying. Um, and 7 out of 10 kind of fits Labour voters. They're 7 out of 10 uh, for in and out. Um, he's absolutely useless at spin, and the people around him are, and even if they were brilliant at spin, the chances of actually doing the spin are minimal given, given the press. What I think he has, and it's not his, is a plan. And the reason I think he's got a plan is every time Theresa does something, he reacts within three minutes, as if he's read the next thing off the flowchart. But there's a kind of story going around that he doesn't know what he's doing. And the worry is that the plan is entirely Seamus's, and you would hope there'd be more people than Seamus if you're into this kind of thing. But I don't see what else you could have actually done. And I think if you look back to say what Labour did a year ago or six months ago or four months ago, are you very angry about it or can you not forget it? If you go knocking on doors for the Labour Party at the moment, you'll hear lots of upsetness about the position. It's not very long to 29th of March and things change after that. We'll find out, but I, I suspect 
that it will be hard to say that another way of behaving would have helped more. I mean, what he could have done is been even better in June 2017. And actually, rather than getting the biggest, fastest swing in the entire history of British voting, which he got, he could have got one twice as big as that. And then we wouldn't be in this mess. But it was, it's bigger than the 1945 swing. And that, that's quite dramatic. So attacking somebody who's the most electorally successful in terms of swing Labour politician since Hatley, when what he's been doing has actually, uh, apart from 97, which is, which is 13 years ago, 18 years Conservative rule, uh, Blair lost votes at each election. Brown lost votes, but it was an enormous recession. Ed gained 1.4%, which was really, really, really good. And actually quite hard. And Corbyn gets 10. <laughs> Ed Miliband would have had to have done 50 years of elections. So I wouldn't have too much go. I also think he's an incredibly useful stopgap. Uh, because he's hard as nails, he's used to being insulted, he'll just sit there. <laughs> and, you know, you can tear him apart. Why is there a lead constituency within the Labour Party? You've argued... Well, it's tiny. Well, they, well, is it tiny? Yes, it's tiny. I mean, I, I've met 12 people who are ardent le Lexiteers and Labour Party. It's tiny. In, in my, my view and my experience. And getting smaller. Yet, yet Labour voters are 7 out of 10 Remainers, um, progressively over, over time. It isn't, this is not a Labour thing. But yeah, yeah. 3 out of 10 Labour voters voted to leave. Yeah. Yes. So yes, there is a constituency so, in Labour who want to leave, but overwhelmingly... So, so here's your example, okay? Essex, yeah. 622,911 6, leave voters. Absolutely massive. More than Lincoln, Rutland, Blind Eye Gwent, which is Labour, Carlisle, which I think is Labour, Allerdale, Copeland, Richmondshire, Craven, Lancaster, Barrow, Ribble Valley, Pendle, Hindburn, Blackburn and Darwin, Rosendale, Rochdale, Redcar, Cleveland, Scarborough, Rydale and Selby, all combined, who have a far bigger electorate than Essex, but Essex produced more Leave voters, and Essex is not a Labour area. Does Labour win anywhere in Essex? This is such a Tory thing. It's like Suez was a Tory thing. You know, I don't quite know why the story is being painted quite as it is being done. Rather than saying the Tory party has had this divide over Europe for decades, is how Major was stabbed in the back. Cameron tried to placate them by leaving the European Conservative bloc in 2014 and joining Alternative for Deutschland and their friends in the European Parliament. The Conservative Party became a European far-right party in 2014. That's what you are if you're friends with Alternative for Deutschland. 52% of the electorate in the 2014 European election in this country voted far-right. That is Conservative, UKIP or DUP. We have a far-right country. Forget Hungary. Forget Austria. Forget the Free Finns. Forget the National Front in France. I'm afraid we, we are a country which has a far-right party in charge of us, far right by European definitions of what it means to be far right, in an alliance with an extreme far right party who don't believe in evolution. So, you know, the Charles Darwin argument doesn't work for the DUP because they've never accepted it. With UKIP in the sidelines who are far right. You know, if you want to be scared, be scared about here. Stop worrying about the rest of the continent. They know what they're doing and they're going to do a much better job of it without our MEPs. Because we were sending more far-right MEPs to the Parliament than all the rest of them put together. We were the problem on the mainland. You know, and it's really, really embarrassing. And it is, um, you know, it is a bit um, problematic too. I actually knew Jeremy Corbyn in the 1970s. He had brown flared trousers and he had long brown hair, you know, he was, he was a nice guy, you know. Um, <laughs> oh well. But um, he, you know, he could take the insults, you know, and uh, okay, he was the only one in 2008 who hadn't claimed any expenses at all, not even mm. for the one pound that some billionaire claimed yeah. for his to yeah. toilet roll or something. Um, so yeah, he's, he's a nice guy, but I think I agree with Danny, he's a bit of a stopgap because 
he could he was an impossible position. He couldn't come out as a Remainer or anything, um, because you know most of the Labour Party actually are Remainers. Uh, but on the other hand, some people are Leavers. So I think so far he's he's kept uh, quite an equilibrium. But you'll notice that he's being attacked violently by uh, right-wing newspapers, particularly you know over anti-Semitism and over you know various other things. And that shows that people are actually worried about uh, the possibility of a Labour government. You know you don't want Jeremy Corbyn as prime minister, and that's I think that's a sort of sign that in fact people actually in the Conservative. And our groups yeah. actually are a bit worried. This yeah. is what, what I mean about Suez. Yeah. You know, we are very close to getting a government, or possibly a Labour Scottish National Party coalition, that would undo everything Margaret Thatcher did. And the main thing Margaret Thatcher did was change the whole of British politics to move it to the right. So she got the parties that came after her to carry on doing her bidding, you know, after she died, in a, in a sense. And... We're in a position where this could actually be reversed. And so you go for everything to hit the one person. And it's great because he's there to soak it all up. And then he'll retire. And then you'll get an election and you'll get somebody 30 years younger who will get attacked like hell, but at least they'll know what's going to be hitting them. And my preference is that he carries on for the moment so that whoever takes over isn't utterly destroyed in six months and has a chance. And the City of London is sitting there. There are only 115 words in the 588-page document about the finance industry. Right? There is no passport to the bank. There's no clearing of euro checks. There's nothing. And we're 46 days away. And the City of London, the FT have begun writing about it. What's worse? This mess? Or a normal European Social Democratic Party, which is what Labour have become. Boring European Social Democrats. We call it far left. It's, it's normal European Social Democrats. And if I was sitting at the top of the gherkin, looking at my options, you know, and that is your options, because the Centre Party isn't going to arise yet, because it'll look rather like the Liberal Party. And kind of, there aren't many seats to be won there, are there? You know, we are in absolutely fascinating times at a chance when things could change for a generation. The last time that the third party was a nationalist party, you know, the SNP, we keep forgetting they're sitting there and they're going to be very, very important because they've got the third most MPs. The last time was 1918 when it was Sinn Fein. Um, and things changed dramatically. And we sit there going, <laughs> Getting close, isn't it? 48 days. Have you bought your... Who's, who's stockpile? Just out of interest. Who's bought toilet rolls? Tins of soup? Do you want to admit anybody? No, no extra muesli? Nothing? My, my daughter I, has. I my I granddaughter there, she's going to be all right because who, her mother's stockpiled. Who has, who has not bought anything extra in case of Brexit? Tomorrow... Listen, your question at the back, can, can I just answer that going back to Empire? Um, you raised the issue of benevolence, you know, and that was definitely something that was uh, always pushed uh, to the younger generations, that wasn't the Empire a benevolent place and weren't we nice to all these people overseas? Well, okay, we gave the English language. I mean, thank heaven, you know, because we're all so bad at languages. At least we've got the English language. But yes, um, benevolence, you know, it was really... We never got the right the right side. We never got the violence and the, the looting and the fear and the illiberalism that went along with, with running an empire. So um, if, if, if you actually want to make a sort of balance sheet, and there are people who do this, there are still people writing about empire, oh, you know, wasn't it a good thing? And then other people, oh, wasn't it a bad thing? Well, okay, if you were a Nigerian... Uh, colonial administrator having your sundowners on the veranda, you know, and your suet puddings afterwards. Mm. That was lovely, you know, but that has all gone now. And that was not benevolence. That was 
um, you know, cruelty or, you know, um, it was definitely not the way to, <laughs> to get people liking you. Uh, so, you know, that was sort of my view on, on what was happening in Empire. And I think, you know, that's now come back to, to roost, as it were, with um, people like um, uh, writing books like um, Afua Hirsch, you know, writing her book about um, what is it to be Brit-ish, you know. And uh, I'm not to... Uh, Edo Lodge. Rennie Edo Lodge. Writing... Um, no, we're not going to talk about race anymore. We ought to be. We ought to be talking and talking about minorities, migration, uh, race, colour, uh, everything, because this is going to be so important if we are going to be um, a decent, normal, multicultural, multiracial country in the future. Well, yeah. so, As I said, one, one last point. On, one thing we found fascinating in the book, because we collected newspaper clips, is that We've had the most insightful journalists were black British journalists yeah. and Fintan O'Toole. Whereas, to stereotype, it is white middle-class Guardian journalists who talk about poor Northerners. The, and we quote, each chapter begins with a quote, and then we realise the quotes were all black British journalists. And that has to tell you something about what's being said and who's saying it in Britain at this point in time. Okay, that is um, all we have time for. So if you can, please join me in a round of applause for our two Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.